But here in Queensland, we have seen natural disasters uh, at increasing levels of severity and frequency. Um, for those that uh, don't live in Queensland, we experienced just a couple of years ago some of the most extraordinary firestorms ripped through parts of Queensland uh, that, uh, that uh, anybody could ever have imagined. They were the sorts of things that you see from uh, you know, the United States or uh, you know, Europe, uh, and they were here on our doorstep. Repeated floods that we've seen uh, devastate uh, our, our, our uh, east coast again and again have been revisited uh, upon uh, Queensland uh, too many times. My name's Ben Beattie and welcome to the Baseload podcast. Our opening clip today was Queensland Energy Minister Mick DeBrenny interviewed on the Renew Economy podcast, describing why he's going to spend $62 billion to close down the existing coal-fired power stations. One is forced to wonder which floods and which fires and which droughts will be mitigated by this amount of spending. I doubt we'll ever be blessed with an answer. News this week, Queensland have a supercharged renewables policy, flagging the end of coal-fired generation by 2035. The Victorian government's announced the world's largest battery storage target, 6,300 megawatts. The Australian Energy Market Operator's Integrated System Plan. Uh, no one's following it. No one cares. Likewise, GenCost, which is CSIRO's attempt to quantify the costs of various types of generation. This week's guest is Alan Moran, an energy system economist. We'll talk about Alcoa's plans to power its Portland aluminium smelter with offshore wind travel north into New South Wales to talk about the, the plans to shut down those coal-fired power stations and finish off with, little, with a little bit of an overview of Alan's work identifying and adding up all the subsidies that go to the renewables lobby. Last week, I was fortunate enough to have a piece published online in The Spectator Australia. This one talked about some of the similarities between the policies of the state premiers and similarly with some of the CEOs around the place, namely AGL. So, for example, one day prior to Palaszczuk's $62 billion announcement, Daniel Andrews set a Victorian state battery target of 6,300 megawatts. One day after, AGL announced 5,000 megawatts of early coal closures and advised the stock market they would spend $20 billion to replace it. I'm not suggesting collusion between state premiers and CEOs of Australia's largest energy companies. But it is an interesting coincidence to comment on nevertheless. I mean, I find it easier to believe that there's a, there's a secret WhatsApp group than I do to believe that these things happened uh, in isolation sequentially so close together. I also find it difficult to believe that spending $62 billion, uh, well, that's, that's probably the low estimate, $62 billion spending is supposed to lower our bills when... Queensland's coal-fired power stations are some of the lowest cost generators on the planet. For example, Cogan Creek Power Station, a 750 megawatt single single turbine outside of Dolby, its its fuel costs are as low as you know a dollar a gigajoule, maybe less. That puts it in the ballpark of an all-in operating cost of about twenty dollars a megawatt hour. This is the the low end of the coal. The next one up, if you look at the figures out of AGL's annual reports, they're all-in costs for coal generation in New South Wales and and the very low cost brown coal in Victoria, they're looking at $30 all in as their operating cost, as a break-even cost for their coal power stations. Now, you can't tell me that replacing these units with brand new wind and solar that operates part of the time, filling in the gaps with gas and building all that transmission to connect it all is going to be cheaper than keeping these existing assets running. It makes, it makes about as much sense as the Greens barracking for a four-day work week with no loss of income. 
Another another cost pressure facing Australian businesses is the federal government safeguard mechanism. Now, this is a, and in essence, this is a carbon credit scheme. So, for example, Corals or that type of organisation can buy a, a wind farm power purchase agreement uh, and claim the credits. As a result of having these excess carbon offsets beyond some arbitrary calculation, they have uh, some headroom between the actual calculated emissions and the emissions that they're allowed to, to put out according to the safeguard mechanism. Now, under the scheme proposed by Minister Bowen, our Federal Energy Minister Guru, they will be able to sell those, uh, those carbon credits to other businesses who need to reduce their emissions under the trading mechanism. So what you can see there is every business needs to spend more just to do business for the sake of reducing emissions. And in an economy where interest rates are increasing, inflation is biting, this is the red tape that adds extra cost to businesses. This is the burden. For evidence of just exactly how bad these policies are for consumers, take a look at the Australian Energy Regulator's Wholesale Statistics webpage and look for the electricity futures. Now, you can look at it state by state or you can look at it overall. Uh, but when you look at New South Wales, futures for four years down the track, four years from now, are trading at $120. So if you wanted to lock in an electricity contract for 2026 and buy some now, just in case it went up, you'd be paying $120 a megawatt hour. Further evidence of the failure of these policies is comments uh, this week by Jeff Dimery, CEO of Alinta, and Frank Calabria, CEO of Origin. Uh, Origin, one of Australia's largest electricity companies, Alinta, probably top five. They're saying that 2023 retail prices will be 35% higher than they are now. Trevis and Baker is one of Australia's better known electricity system and energy entrepreneurs. He's gotten out of coal by selling his Vales Point power station. And now Trevor's been quoted as saying gas is the choice to keep the lights on amid reliability. And that lines up with what other energy system realists also have been saying. Recall a couple of episodes ago, I replayed Frank Calabria saying that he's going to replace Araring's output with gas. Uh, gas for days and weeks is the, is the phrase, and that sounds like baseload to me and also sounds very expensive. Here's the piece in the Herald Sun by Perry Williams. Quote, Power prices in Australia will soar by at least 35% in 2023 amid a choppy energy transition and the closure of coal plants, the nation's fourth largest electricity retailer said. Next year, using the current market prices, Tariffs are going up a minimum 35%, Alinta Chief Executive Jeff Dimery told an energy conference in Sydney. It's horrendous. It's unpalatable. We don't want energy consumers getting their power bills and setting fire to them. There are real issues around energy pricing that we've got right now, and I think the public are going to get more attuned to that. Imagine a world where your energy company CEOs can come out on the record and tell everyone that their power price is going up because of the policies currently in place, and no one says anything. This is incredible. Except for Matt Canavan, who's been outspoken about these policies and their obvious consequences, the opposition has been missing in action. The Greens are cheering on Labor, Labor are cheering on Labor, and the LNP is stuck behind net zero. Come on, LNP, wake up. The world is changing, and the world's response to climate change is changing the world. It is changing the global economy. This is real. It's happening. We understand it and we recognise it. 
We need to protect against the threats that come from that. And we also need to realise the opportunities that indeed help mitigate those threats and enable Australia to succeed. And that was former Prime Minister Scott Morrison announcing the LNP's net zero policy. That went well. So imagine politicians making decisions that actually increase generation scarcity in a, in a time when energy security is probably one of the main features you'd vote for in a government with the, uh, with the idiocy going on around the world at the moment. There's no mandate from an election to close all the coal-fired power stations. There's no mandate to increase Queensland state debt by 50%. That's a $62 billion. Interestingly enough, Queensland's state debt, according to the audit office, Queensland Auditor's Office, at the 2021 financial year was $124 billion. So that $62 billion represents half of the state debt that we have at the moment, a, a debt that's increased sixfold since the year 2000, where the state debt was only $20 billion. We're definitely in a situation where we're funding our own demise. And I honestly don't believe the Queensland government cares if power prices skyrocket. I think it plays right into their hands. You see the results of this every day on the news. Uh, high power prices, get more solar. Higher power prices, more revenue for the state-owned generators. Higher power prices, more incentive for companies to buy power purchase agreements with wind and solar. It actually means more government intervention uh, amid the ever more deafening cries of save the planet. And this is not just in Australia, not just in Queensland. This is, this is pretty much everywhere at the moment, in the Western world anyway. Here's Janet Yellen, United States Secretary of the Treasury, explaining why this all needs to happen. Let me touch on the risks of climate change to our economy. Of course, unmitigated climate change is an existential threat to everyone on our planet. In a world that continues to warm, Regions that are prosperous today may eventually become unsuited for productive economic activity. In many regions, human mortality is projected to rise and labor productivity to fall, with the size of the impacts depending on the degree of warming. Bjorn Lomborg, interviewed by Jordan Peterson, offers a perfect rebuttal to this nonsense. 60% of them believe that it's likely global warming will lead to the end of mankind. If you think this is the end of the world, then obviously nothing else matters. It is not. Global warming is a problem, yes, but it's not by any means the end of the world. And one way to look at that is, you know, we've just seen a lot of heat waves and those are horrible. And remember, heat waves are damaging and they will kill some people. They're definitely dangerous. But after all, they will probably kill, you know, in the order of a couple of thousand people. Remember, every winter, we probably see about three to 600,000 people die from cold in Europe. We don't have a good sense of proportion if we're only focused on the, and it's actually a lot more, so 100, 200,000 people that actually die from heat across the year, but forget the many, many more that die from cold. And that's what we're going to, sorry, that's what we're going to see this, this uh, winter when we run out of, of, of uh, sufficient uh, uh, fossil fuels and some people are going to start freezing, we will be much, much more worried about cold waves than heat waves. But that's not how the media present it. And that's why we're in the trouble. In the trouble, indeed. Notice how Janet Yellen's argument is based on the premise that global warming is a danger, whereas Lomborg points out quite accurately that cold is the danger. And the protection against cold is 
to stay warm using gas, coal, electricity, anything you can. Therefore, any, any government policy that makes energy scarce, especially in a northern hemisphere winter, is disastrous. Alan Moran is an economist with plenty to say on the energy sector. We caught up this week to talk over a few things, and here it is. Welcome to the Baseline Podcast. This week, I'm talking to a friend of mine, Alan Moran. Alan, we've we've conversed uh, quite a bit in the in the last couple of years regarding our what we regard as a failing energy system. Uh, one of the one of the recent things that came up in the paper was Alcoa's attempt, or seemingly attempt, to power their Portland uh, aluminium smelter with an offshore wind. That sounds a little bit crazy to me. And before we go into the numbers, what's your what's your thoughts on it? Well, I think Alcoa is in a difficult position itself because it's reliant upon the goodwill of the state government, uh, essentially, to subsidise its power. Uh, so it's likely to say things, it's, it's unlikely to say things that don't resonate with that government. And uh, I, I guess, uh, like all aluminium smelters in Australia, it's, it's kind of living on borrowed time, given the fact that, uh, it, that it was founded by the use of cheap coal and that the, those coal plants are now closing we had in fact i think we had about 70 units in in australia uh, 10 years ago operating there's probably only about 35 now and that's before we started talking about some of the the imminent closures in uh, in queensland yeah and victoria seems desperate to lead the charge although you could you could say the same thing about most of the other states lead the charge into a intermittent uh, majority intermittent energy system. When we say subsidies for coal in Victoria in particular, uh, I suppose one of the things I've noticed is the the Yalorn prop up, which no one seems to have a good handle on except maybe the, the Premier and the Energy Minister and maybe uh, Energy Australia themselves who own the plant. That's a deal that takes it most of the decade, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a deal that, um, and uh, and that the uh, Yalorn and the the smelter basically need to have. I mean, essentially, the uh, Yalorn and all of the, the coal-fired power stations are in financial jeopardy as a result of facing the the subsidised uh, opposition from renewables, in particular. That that subsidised opposition basically. Uh, kicks in at you know 34 to 40 at least 40 dollars megawatt hour so they can basically bid minus 40 and be assured of making a profitable running and you're referring there to the, the large-scale generation certificates the lgcs which right. started started off at about 20 dollars back in the day closer to the year 2000 when they started and ramped up to 80 something over 80 dollars megawatt hour for a while there and they're still hanging around right. at 40 dollars yeah I mean, and everybody said, "Oh, you know, they'll they'll be zero by 2020 or 2021." Well, you know, the price is is clear that they are 41, 42 dollars still. I love I love a good prediction in the energy market. It's uh, the only thing that mm -hmm. does seem to come to fruition is that things will cost more and be less reliable. And uh, usually, the, uh, the those things will cost more uh, are tempered. They say, "Well, they'll cost more for a couple of years," but then when when the uh, renewables uh, get get even more efficient than they've been now then the price will drop down to something not very dissimilar from uh, what we had in the uh, in, in the 1990s which of course it never it never, it never works out like that no and, and one one interesting analogy that we've 
you that popped into my head when you mentioned that the Victorian government is propping up some of these industries is similar to the car industry, which obviously, if they're going to make cars, manufacturing cars in Australia, you've got red tape, you've got labor costs, and you've got energy costs. Uh, and all of those things add up to make the place very difficult to do business in those energy intensive areas. Yeah, there's a bit of talk that, you know, there'll be some battery manufacturing here or, or even some car assembly here of the Tesla sort. But, you know, the, the, that is not going to happen with the current uh, regulatory arrangements we have. You know, it might well happen if we had power on the wholesale market at, uh, at $40 a megawatt hour, which is was the norm just a few years ago. But the 100, 140, which, we, which is the new norm, that uh, makes it out of the question. And then, of course, uh, it, it would be government sorts of bodies who would be promoting it. So there would be a very strong union that basically say in how the plant would be developed, et cetera. So it is not going to happen. I can, I can picture it now, Elon Musk doing a deal with uh, Daniel Andrews. Um, it, Dan, yeah. I mean, Elon Musk moved his facilities out of California because I imagine there's a whole lot of reasons, but one of them was taxes, one of them was red tape. He's not going to move anything into Australia uh, anytime no. soon. You know, Elon Musk uh, takes, a, takes a principled view that he's not going to have unions in his plants. Uh, and that, that's, that means he foregoes some subsidies in the United States because the Biden administration does want union plants. So uh, he, would, he would not accept a union plant here. That doesn't mean to say his workers aren't paid well. In fact, they're paid very well. I, I wanted to kick off this with a, with a quick chat about this um, Portland smelter. So from what I understand, it's about 300 megawatts, which is around about 10% of Victoria's average demand. They're talking about powering this site through offshore wind. Now, offshore wind hasn't even, doesn't have any kind of a start in Australia at the moment. Um, and I yeah. know there's a bit of pushback from the from the Gippsland and and the other communities who don't want to look at them. My my best estimate for the capex cost of offshore wind is uh, good old GenCost CSIRO's attempt to give everyone an insight into how much things cost. And that at their estimates, uh, you're looking at four and a half billion dollars for the a thousand megawatt offshore wind farm. That seems like it's going to cost quite a lot in terms of dollars per megawatt hour to to pay off. Yeah, well, I think it would. I think I've seen some numbers uh, that would, we, we, we would be talking $100, $150 per megawatt hour for a facility which is basically congealed energy anyway uh, and which is competing with other facilities around the world at $40 a megawatt hour or even less. So it can't possibly be made to fly uh, with wind, uh, even, if you could, even if you could get the wind uh, basically firmed up uh, and when we're talking about the numbers that you were just discussing then on top of that you've got to firm it up in some way and uh, we, we're talking colossal numbers then unless unless CSIRO's gen cost estimates are far far out of whack you know heaven forbid me criticize a CSIRO and their, their gen cost report <laughs> I think yeah. a future podcast will uh, go into that in a bit more detail so four and a half billion for that and then maybe maybe throw in some contingency and a bit more for the un, the undersea cable and transmission. So you're, you're pushing six billion there for this wind farm. My uh, back of the envelope calculation says thirty five million per month would be interest on six billion dollars, and to earn thirty five million per month at the capacity factors that a wind farm would be operating at, 
you'd be looking at $160 a megawatt hour. And that's just on the interest payments. That's not operation. That's not paying back the capital. So I don't know where these guys are talking about unless they're talking about something like a $50 or $60 or more subsidy per megawatt hour just to keep the uh, the lights on at the Portland smelter. Well, I think it would have to be at least that and probably more because uh, we are really talking about it's having to compete with energy at about $40 at the present time. Uh, and indeed, I think that the contract that they had, it's a confidential contract, but there's some numbers leaked out that there was even less than that. It was like half of that, the uh, the long-term contract they had back in, uh, in, in the 1990s or 1980s even. Uh, so, you know, it was a very, very low price, which is consistent with the sort of prices that, that we see uh, overseas uh, in terms of, uh, of, of smelters. Indeed, all, all the smelters under con- contemplation now are in, in third world countries, essentially, especially the ex-Soviet bloc countries where they have a lot of hydro potential and and, uh, and very cheap gas in some cases. They've got power to spare, basically. Yeah. So they can price it at, uh, at a marginal cost, which is not, not possible in Australia. It's interesting, you know, because when you look at the AGL's annual reports, uh, one of the one of the few energy companies that you can get at a, the the figures on because they're on the ASX, their all in cost for coal power all across the board is is about thirty dollars a megawatt hour, and that includes the Black Coal, Bayswater, and AGL in New South Wales where they have a third party contracts for the fuel. So I expect their Loyang down in Victoria, which has a a mine you know a hundred meters from the power station and no export uh, commitments, would have to be far below thirty dollars a megawatt hour all in. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly marginal cost would be much below that. In fact, it would be more like eleven dollars. Uh, but the uh, once you you know include maintenance and various things, you're certainly up to up to thirty five, forty dollars, uh, and it's breaking even then. And yet, this is a power station which they say they're going to close and replace by wind, which your back of the envelope numbers, which are consistent with every other number I've ever seen, uh, would be a hundred dollars, hundred fifty dollars or so. So you you're closing down power which which makes money at uh, at, at forty dollars and replacing it with power which basically is going to cost you one hundred fifty hundred sixty dollars just doesn't make any sense and as well as that in the case of AGL we're, we're talking about a company which has been driven into the dirt by its management is probably only worth well its market capitalization is only about five billion dollars at this point of time. Uh, and it's talking about spending $20 billion in terms of, of new uh, facilities. Well, may, may, maybe they're getting cheaper interest rates than the rest of us. Who knows? I, I did very interested in, I'm wondering why the the ownership of, of Portland would be looking at, and maybe this is a question we can't answer, we can just speculate on, of course, but if they could, if I was running the joint, admittedly, that's a, that's a bit of a stretch of the imagination. <laughs> I'm just a lowly engineer up here in Queensland. I'd be looking for the cheapest power I could get. And I'd certainly be going to AGL's, uh, you know, de facto CEO, Mike Cannon-Brooks and saying, Mike, how about you sign me up for, you know, $30 or $40 a megawatt hour and I'll take it for the next 10 years. Yeah, well, nice try. I mean, basically, Cannon-Brooks, of course, would say he wouldn't do it under any circumstances because he wants to buy that company to close down the the coal plant. So uh, ideology takes over from commercial uh, viability in that case and uh, it, it probably won't work while he has a major say in the future of that company yeah i don't reckon he'd take nuclear if it was on the table either i think he's dedicated to the wind solar battery 
mm. scenario, and that's it. That leads me into thinking about the the situation of the electricity system in general. And moving north from Victoria, New South Wales's coal generators, I think they're going to be next on the table. We've already had some big announcements. Calabria yeah. of origin announced a raring would be off by 2025, although for various reasons, I don't know if that'll be true. Then we've had AGL come out and match Queensland's race to the bottom and say 2035, and they're all out of coal. And that takes out Liddell and Bayswater, although we could say that Liddell was off the cards anyway next year. That's not a positive scenario for New South Wales in my books. It looks like they're going to be running short of power. Yeah, well, they they, they, they will be. Uh, the treasurer, Matt Keane, is very confident, though, that uh, if you build sufficient transmission lines, that we will get all this uh, renewable energy flocking to uh, to the state and producing at a very cheap price. <clears throat> I mean, the whole point about renewable energy, uh, wind and solar, especially uh, onshore, is that, you know, it, it is $40, $50 per megawatt hour, but it's $40, $50 per megawatt hour when they want to sell it, not necessarily when you want to buy it. So there is a firming cost associated with that, aside from the, the, the cost of the transmission network, which a lot of money has been spent on that. ALP is talking about an $80 billion spend across the, the nation as a whole, which is about three times the present value of the transmission system. And that, that's in a sense, is well, more than a sense, is actually subsidizing the, uh, the, the wind power, which is less, which is less dense than, than coal power and therefore needs a lot more lines. That's a good point. I mean, if it's the, um, the renewables and the climate lobby like to complain about coal and fossil fuel subsidies of which they are vastly overstate them by orders of magnitude but they're very quiet on wind and solar not needing to build its own transmission i'm looking at the a chart of the as of the aer's uh future prices so interestingly 2026 is the furthest it goes out q1 and we're looking at victoria is around about the 60 dollars uh mm. you can buy power now for 60 dollars but new south wales pretty close to $120. And that's that's the lowest it looks like it's going to be for the next few years. What does that say about the AGLs and Mike Cannonbrooks' plans? Surely at those kind of prices, they'd be looking at keeping everything available. You'd think so. Uh, the, I mean, the, the, the key aspect, and you mentioned it when you're talking about Alcoa, is what they're going to do about the smelters. Because at the moment, the price is, is at a certain level because we've use the cheap power we had in the past to industrialize. But once we, we start on a path towards deindustrialization, which is what we're on the path we're on to, suddenly there's a surfeit of power. And you can imagine once once one smelter closes, the, the price will drop quite quite uh, markedly uh, and will continue dropping until we then close more power, uh, coal power stations, in which case it will go up again. So we'll see this zigzag uh, going on for some time but the the bottom line is that the zigzag is is causing us to deindustrialize de and therefore have less income. That's a terribly depressing train of thought, Alan. I must say, but it does uh it does run somewhat in uh in in parallel to my train of thought. See, Tamago in New South Wales is about nine hundred megawatts, which is what's New South Wales maximum demand about thirteen gigawatts. So it's not quite ten percent of the state's load. But you're right; if that load disappears for any reason, then there's a much less demand on the state's electricity system. Powers of B can then justify we're meeting our demand with our intermittent 
widely dispersed and low density energy system. That is exactly the path to deindustrialization, which means less jobs, less taxes, less royalties, and generally less satisfaction with life overall. The the futures the futures are are an interesting story. So New South Wales at one hundred and twenty dollars, and AGL trying to get out of that market, it just doesn't even it doesn't make sense to me. I don't see how it adds up at all. Closing down these coal power stations. Well, so many people are besotted by the sort of data that you've mentioned already. CSIRO saying, well, this is the cheapest form of energy. In fact, I heard the, the treasurer say this just the other day, that there's no point going nuclear because uh, renewables are the cheapest form of energy. CSIRO has told us that's the case. And yet all of those people continue to require subsidies. They never, they never clarify this, though, because you'll find that they always catch this in terms of it's the cheapest new form of energy. But they don't discuss system costs and they don't say that it's cheaper than what's already there. Now, right. when, you, when you look at the numbers we talked about already for AGL, those numbers are actually supported by Origins annual reports as well, where it talks about their cost for coal. It's even cheaper in Queensland, where the Queensland generators are not exposed to export coal prices, the majority of them. I mean, Kogan Creek's the cheapest uh, coal power station to run in the country. And it's 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 got to be down around the $20 a megawatt hour all in because its fuel yeah. costs are very, very low. So it, it it makes no sense to me to uh, for anyone to say that wind and solar are the cheapest new form of generation when the existing generation is cheaper still. Uh, it's, an, it's, it's bizarre, isn't it? Because uh, for the first time maybe in history, we're seeing businesses electing to pay more for their uh, their inputs than they, they could do, which is um, being forced upon them to some degree by uh, their financiers and insurance companies, etc. When they make their inputs cost more, they charge more for their product. And obviously that comes back to cost of living pressures on us consumers. Now, it's interesting you mentioned that because recently there's been some pushback in the States in uh, not not quite antitrust, but bordering on that with this ESG movement. Now, the uh, environment, social governance factors that these boards push, there's been some states pushing back on someone as big as BlackRock and investing entities yeah. as big as BlackRock and saying, we don't want your money because all your money is pushing these uh, basically anti-human agendas, which are going to put us out of business. I think that's a quite an interesting uh, development. Um and the latest one being uh, Louisiana, which has said, you know, Black, BlackRock, you're handling $700 or $800 uh, million of ours. Um, but you're basically advocating things which are alien to our interests as a state. We're going to stop using you. And uh, they've, they've put them on notice to say so. Uh, West, West uh, Virginia has also done the same, Texas, I believe, also. So you, you're seeing some of that pushback from the public sector. I'd love um, to see. I'd love to see some of that pushback in this public sector. It seems that our our public sector only speaks out about it when they lose their jobs. You are you're seeing another pushback though, because the essentially the ESG companies have been priding themselves on not only being virtuous but on being more profitable than those com companies which are heavily invested in coal and oil and gas. And of course, the opposite has happened over the last uh, year or so. And for example, in in Australia, the uh, the, the uh, ASX two hundred has dropped about eight eight and a half percent, whereas the 
energy sector has, has increased about 30%, and the coal sector has increased by 100%. So, you know, uh, essentially the ESG firms, who for a long time was, were bo boasting that not only were they virtuous, but they were increasing people's earnings, will now be finding quite the opposite to the case. If I was the, uh, I actually think if I was the climate and renewables lobby, I'd be running scared because uh, obviously the uh, the fossil fuel lobby would have a lot more resources behind it if they wanted to put the climate lobby out of business. They could, they should be able to do that with a small percentage of their earnings. You've you've done a bit of work on subsidies in the past, Alan. Can you give us a rundown on on what your findings were, and then we'll talk about some of the some of the inputs and and how it works. Yeah, well, basically, what I looked at was just adding up all the all the costs. Uh, of, of features in the Australian economy. So there are three sorts of costs which I brought together. All of these are kind of on the public record. First is the outlays which are in the, the Commonwealth budget, and that's things like the, the uh, CEFC commitments, which is the Green Bank, or Clean Energy Regulator, um, various other subsidies, which are all itemised. They come to about $2.4 billion a year to, to green. Then, then we made brief mention of the um, of the uh, the off budget or the regulations, and the, there's two uh, two ones there. There's the large scale uh, windmills and and large solar, uh, and then there's the small scale rooftop. Mm -hmm. Both of those numbers, we know how much how much how many megawatts they produce. We also know how much the price or the subsidy per megawatt is, and that comes to about three billion dollars. And then there's various state subsidies, um, some of which are actually on budget, and some of which are off budget. Um, and what is the, what is that? What do they mean by off budget? I understand on budget. Obviously, it's all public record, and it's yeah, got to be what decided in advance. Yeah, well, the, the ones on budget are actually in in the budget, so you can it it, it itemizes them. The off budget ones are regulations, which is uh, requires them to uh, requires firms in each state to engage in, in various sort of activities. And they are evaluated and costed by the Australian Energy Market uh, Commission uh, annually publishes some data on these. The, the data is kind of usually broad brush, but it isn't publicly available. Most of the, if someone wanted to go through and, and spend the time and effort, uh, they could actually find all these numbers themselves. Yeah, which is really what I did. Uh, it is a lengthy process, funnily enough, the, the, the government, the Commonwealth government, used to actually do this themselves back about 15 years ago when they were rather proud of how much was being spent in, in, in renewables in terms of the carbon carbon agenda. I do remember Angus, I do remember Angus Taylor uh, letting it slip a couple of times when he was pressed. He was he was up to 30 billion, I think, was the last count a couple of elections ago. Yeah, I mean, uh, and Ang Angus Taylor was one of these people basically who were argued that you know that this was excessive but the prices were coming down it won't be as much as uh, uh, i mean he he'd said that the sorts of costs which i'd added up which is about seven billion dollars a year would be considerably lower by by now uh, of course they're not gone up well it's, it's it's gone up by more than per year i mean we're talking about decadal investment now we're we're just yeah. we've gone up in order of magnitude exactly because none of this includes the the now much vaunted uh, subsidies for renewable energy. Nor does it include the uh, pumped hydro. We, we, we all, we've only really got snowy at the moment, but these these much vaunted ones in uh, in in Queensland. 
a thought popped into my mind then when he said snowy because obviously the quoted and budgeted amounts might be one thing but the actual costs are another i mean the uh the estimate the the napkin estimate that uh malcolm turnbull favored us with was two billion and now we're up to what five or six for the pump state for the hydro itself plus a couple more for the transmission um and that doesn't even you know that might not even cover it so that's are any of those subsidies include this error margin or are we are they just the numbers quoted at the time and that's that's what you've got to use the numbers i used didn't even include snowy so you know snowy uh was supposed to be a viable uh, uh investment at two billion dollars which you could see that might be the case especially as we move to to wind uh and that there is a greater volatility in price but once cost explodes to five billion and you and you mentioned then another couple of billion for the transmission. I mean, I've seen numbers as high as eleven billion dollars as the final outcome for Snowy Two. We, we're talking about a, a very big increase in what was originally envisaged, and this can't make sense. So all of that is on top of of the uh, the. I only added up what the actual subsidies were to renewables in terms of disbursements from the budget and in terms of the requirements on the. Uh, in terms of the supply requirements placed on on the retailers, that is through the uh, large scale and the small scale uh, subsidies. But you know, on top of that, there's there's a massive amount now in terms of of the pumped hydro and in terms of the uh, the the uh, transmission, which um, is being said by the government, federal government, is is cost going to cost eighty billion dollars. I don't know. I don't know how we're meant to cover the cost of this as consumers, um, especially with the cost of living, inf- interest rates, inflation, everything's going up. And because energy or le- electricity in particular is so fundamental to everything, it's going to affect everything in that way. And of course, the, the people whose cost of living and the electricity bills is a greater proportion of their total spending, it's going to affect them more, which means they'll be able to spend less on something else, which might be you know, school books or new clothes or even petrol for the car in some cases. Uh, I walked into a bakery this morning. There was seven dollars for a meat pie. I couldn't believe it. Well, I mean, that's a, that's the thing. Uh, energy percolates every single thing we do. You know, it's it's not only the energy for cooking the meat pie, but it's the energy for growing. You know, basically for fertilizers and a whole lot of other things. Yeah. And and we, you know, if we are purposely moving to this high cost energy, it means that we have a lower standard of living, much lower. Well, Alan, that is a fantastic up note to uh, end our discussion on. Thank you very much. We'll be talking to you again soon. Okay, thanks. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a week. In the meantime, if you like the podcast, hit the like button, subscribe, tell your friends.